0: You're listening to Garden Futurist. I'm Sarah Beck, here with Erin Anderson. Erin, some folks in our audience might hear your name and think, why do I know that name? And realize that they just read your article. I did my graduate research in a garden ecology lab. This is what gardeners want to know. Yes. I spoke with Steve Buchman, a pollination ecologist who's been studying bee biology for more than four decades. I talked to him about his book, What a Bee Knows, Exploring the Thoughts, Memories, and Personalities of Bees. Steve does this amazing job sharing frontiers of research. As a garden futurist, I get super excited about that stuff, where it's like, we don't really know where research is going to take us in the coming years. You know, he mentions all these cutting-edge things, from the microbiome to looking at bloom times, and, and obviously football, American soccer. There's a lot of things bees are doing that we may understand a lot better in the coming decades. But I'm wondering, because you do have so much expertise in this field, where you see the most important threads in this conversation that I had with Steve, because I I do think the Gardner piece is so important. And I'm wondering, you know, where should we have our eye on the ball and something really specific as we're listening to this
1: conversation? I think that What is really neat about this book, you know, what a bee knows is that he covers this amazing breadth of different topics and research. The first part is kind of a great primer on bee biology and ecology. But then it gets into all of this really interesting bee learning, bee cognition research. And I think that the things that were striking me the most as I was reading this and kind of thinking about it was just the complexity of everything that there is to know about bees, both their behavior in your garden as well as things that are happening, you know, at the neural level. There's a lot of things we as people and even, you know, historically, you know, researchers have kind of assumed was simpler than it actually is. I think one of those examples was thinking of the flower-bee relationship as this mutualism. But in fact, it's not just both of these parties benefiting, it's so much more complicated because it is an herbivore-plant interaction. So it's also this arms race. There's both flowers and bees that cheat the system. So this might not necessarily be you know, super applicable to the home gardener who just wants to provide habitat, but it's an example of, I think, all of these things with pollinators being really complex.
0: I did a little bit of gushing when I emailed you, but this book is really incredible. I have to say... I think even for those of us who are like, I think I know something about bees and pollinators, this absolutely blew my mind.
2: You know, I'm a pollination ecologist and I normally spend my time chasing bees around the desert and also the tropics, figuring out what they do, you know, in terms of what colors they can see, what they smell, quantifying the amount of pollen and nectar that they take from flowers. So I had to really spend a year or so researching and contacting my neurobiologist friends and reading literature that I normally don't read. So everything from behavioral stuff to physiology, you know, probing the bee brain was really a lot of fun.
0: I have to ask you about the bee microbiome. There is so much interesting science happening right now on this topic relating to human health. I guess it shouldn't be a surprise that bees need microorganisms to be healthy. (laughs) Can you tell us a little bit more about this? And also, how the heck did we learn this?
2: Yeah, actually, when I was a research entomologist working for USDA Federal Lab in Tucson quite a few years ago, I started out working with a microbiologist. We were the first team that found some of these helpful bacteria in honeybees and also some solitary bees as well. But now things have kind of come full circle and I'm collaborating with colleagues like Brian Danforth at Cornell, other colleagues at my alma mater UC Davis, also UC Riverside. And now with the ability to go to these bees and basically extract some liquid basically from the adult bee gut or my favorite to go into the brood cells and pull out some of this bee bred pollen nectar mixture. And we do a DNA extraction. I mean, it's just like forensics, right? To identify a serial killer or something. We extract the DNA, we use PCR to ramp it up, and then we do either shotgun metagenomics or...
0: What does that mean, shotgun metagenomics?
2: That one is kind of new, but basically in the old days, you would just amplify one type of DNA and identify it alone. But with this new technique on rapid like Illumina sequencers and that sort of thing, you might have literally dozens or hundreds of bacteria or fungi species in one sample. So basically you break everything up, you amplify it, and then you have certain matches basically. And you look in these global DNA libraries and you can identify the species. Now you can't always identify them because there are a huge, huge number of new species out there. But I would say in the last decade that we've made huge progress in trying to identify these. One of my favorites is in an Arizona bee called Tilaglossa. It's a buzz pollinator. So it's females go to deadly nightshade flowers and vibrate their bodies, turning them into like a little tuning fork, and they blast the pollen out. This is like my favorite That's so research cool. <laughs> thing that I've done my entire career. But when you open up their cells, you go, whoa, is there a brewery nearby? So you look at these cells and they're filled with mostly nectar with kind of a trace of pollen and they're bubbling CO2 and it smells like beer. When we analyze these, we find out that, hey, there is actually, well, the taxonomy has changed a little bit, but let's just say lactobacillus, To be kind of casual about it, but these are the same sort of bacteria that are in your morning yogurt. What we think is happening now is that certain bees, not all of them, but certain bees are getting a big hit of nutrients by eating the sort of microbial meat, if you will, rather than the pollen. So we think of these bees as sort of being microbial farmers, like us taking probiotics or something. The bees, even though they don't live a long time, they can be hurt or killed by bad guys, different fungi, or even the wrong bacteria. So it seems that some of these lactobacillus and other bacteria are in there, and then they're out competing the bad guys. So basically, you've got kind of a good versus evil thing happening within (laughs) the gut of the bee or in their brood cell.
0: Let me just jump back to the fact that this book is called what a bee knows and you say that bees have an extraordinary ability to think solve problems learn remember and that learning is involved in virtually every aspect of bees daily lives and bees use tools (laughs) i never would have looked at this youtube video but you mention in the book the bumblebees playing soccer video and Of course, I immediately had to look at this, and it's really worth seeing. This is from Queen Mary University of London, the laboratory of Lars Chitka. Can you explain why the researchers did this other than the obvious love the English have for (laughs) football?
2: Lars Chitka is a good friend and colleague. I've published with him now and then. But he and his lab, his students, they really wanted to investigate the behavior of what we have to really call tool using. I mean, the fact that any animal besides us, people, use tools was kind of broken wide open, I guess, maybe in the 60s by Jane Goodall when she saw her chimps putting little grass blades into termite nests and then pulling the termites out and eating them. And they would even cut the grass to the right length. So they were making and using a tool. And this blew everybody away it turns out that bees are doing similar things. So my favorite from the Chitka lab was not just training them to push little round balls into an area to get a reward, but my favorite is tool using that they demonstrated by pulling strings. And this is an amazing video to watch, also available on YouTube. So they trained bees to pull a string and you need to really need to look at the video to understand what's going on. But there's a plastic cover over a round blue disc that has a little well in it, and they filled that with sugar water, which the bumblebees wanted to get because they love sugar water, little sugar junkies. They basically had pre-trained bees and then untrained bees that watched their hive mates do this, and then they could do it simply by watching. So then you have an untrained bee that works really, really hard to pull and pull and pull this little string and this heavy... Blue plastic circle until it gets out from under this lid and then they hop on and drink up the soda water basically. <laughs> it's neat to watch them push the little balls or pull the string. His students have done something recently. I don't know if it's on YouTube yet, but they put some little wooden balls just in an arena where the bumblebee workers had access to and no reward or anything and I don't know if I'm quite willing to believe this yet, but they're hypothesizing that the bees are basically playing by moving these little balls around. So not quite sure if I'm ready to go there yet, but certainly their demonstration of tool using is pretty remarkable. So
0: one of the most mind-blowing moments of your book for me was the section where you talk about bees engineering bloom times. This was a phenology concept. Can you share a little bit of that story with us?
2: Yeah. I mean, some researchers in England, and I don't know that it's been repeated, and it is a bit controversial. So we only have this one paper, one example, but European bumblebees, I think it was Bombus terrestris, which is pretty commonly used there to pollinate like tomatoes and glasshouses. They observed that some bees would go and cut little notches, little holes in the leaves of tomato plants. And they thought, wow, why are they doing this? There's no food there. What is going on? So the long and short of it is that they are saying that just like a human gardener might pinch buds or remove old flowers to promote more budding or flowering that, hey, maybe the bees are doing the same thing. So that they are anticipating that their actions will cause future flowering maybe in a few days or weeks time so to me that one is really really crazy if it's trees it's pretty so that, out there yeah so the bees might actually be engineering bloom time
0: one of my favorite quotes from your book is bees might as well be alien life forms from a distant planet in terms of what we might envision of what they're thinking
2: i'm not sure that i'm willing to go quite as far as Lars Chitka goes in his recent excellent book, The Mind of a Bee, but I'm probably 90% of the way there. I would agree with Lars that I think bees and a lot of other insects probably have a primitive form of consciousness, and we really don't know what that's like. I believe that bees are sentient in terms of the definition of sentient, being able to feel pain. Some people would say that the sentience goes to other emotions as well, but I'm, yeah, not really, not really sure about that. I talk about in my book, some researchers that think about, certainly we know that bees sleep and they have sleep and wake cycles. They have different sleeping postures from some chemical studies. We think that there's memory consolidation happening during sleep, just like happens in us and other animals. So from that standpoint, It might not be too much of a stretch to, well, if they're doing that, if it's something maybe like REM sleep or whatever, you know, maybe bees are dreaming, maybe they're...
0: They might be thinking about the football game.
2: Yeah, they (laughs) might be thinking about playing football or they might be thinking about, wow, I found this great flower patch yesterday and I'm going to go back.
0: You're listening to Garden Futurist. We'll be back in a moment. Expert tree care down to a science. For 115 years, family-owned Bartlett Tree Experts has brought a rare mix of groundbreaking science, award-winning safety practices, and global resources to every task at hand. Our tree research laboratories are staffed by some of the leading researchers of the day, providing us with the expertise to champion every tree, no matter the species. Discover how our passion for trees is inspiring one beautiful property after another. Call eight seven seven Bartlett or visit Bartlett B A R T L E T T dot com. explain that bees can be solitary, social, or parasitic. And almost 80% of the world's 20,000 described bee species lead solitary lives. The social bees seem to get a lot of press. I think we hear about them a lot. But what are those solitary bees doing? Especially as gardeners, I think we feel really lucky when we see a native solitary bee here in the West. And I'm not sure that as gardeners, we really know what they're up to when we see them.
2: Yeah, you're entirely right. Social bees like honeybees and, to a lesser extent, bumblebees tend to get all the press, especially honeybees. But we do have around 3,500 native solitary bees in the United States, and the vast majority of them are ground nesting. And there are other solitary bees which can nest in broken-off twigs like elderberry twigs or from a rose bush, that sort of thing. So they're cavity nesters. But probably in the West, as gardeners, gardeners are probably more likely to see furry, chubby little bees that are in the genus Anthophora that fly quite fast and hover. Some of them have nicely striped black and white abdomens. Others can be mostly gray, other solitary bees that gardeners might see would include the leafcutter bees. Some gardeners might have some unkind words for the leafcutter bees because for roses and a few other plants, you can see these little semicircle notches cut out of the margins of leaves. And those are due to female leafcutter bees uh, in the genus Megachile collecting those leaves and bringing them back to their nests, basically wrapping up their larvae and their nectar and pollen food in them. I like to think of these as almost like baby blankets for the bees. So the female bees are usurping some chemical defenses from the plant against bacteria and fungi, and they might make this nice little wrapper to hold the baby bees, basically
0: want it, let them have it, right?
2: Right. I like to tell people that, yeah, don't get out the can of spray because those few little bits of leaves are not going to kill your rosebush or whatever plant the leafcutter bees are taking a few bits from.
0: Oh, and you mentioned the cavity-dwelling bees. Are there some particular plant materials we should be leaving for them?
2: Yeah. Dead canes of things like, if you're lucky enough to live in kind of a wild area with elderberry. They also get into fennel or, like I said, rose bushes or similar things that are kind of pithy twigs that when you snip them off, it leaves a nice little cut area that they can get into.
0: I want to get right to the bees and plants conversation because we're gardeners and we love the connection to plants. And not just pollination, because you actually make a distinction between the floral visitors and the pollinators. I'm curious what the difference is.
2: Yeah, unless you really study these plants, probably from a natural history or scientific viewpoint, you wouldn't notice. So not every floral visitor is a pollinator. One of my best examples is to think of it in terms of thieves or robbers. So there are bees that are nectar robbers, for example, some of my favorites, the gentle giants, the big black carpenter bees, have these stiletto-like mouth parts, and they will go to the base of flowers that are too long, like tubular trumpet-shaped flowers, Gelsimium, or here in Arizona, I don't know if you have it in California or other areas of the West, but Tacoma is one, Bignoniaceae. A lot of these things are too long for them to get their short mouth parts into, So the bees learn to go to the base of the flower and with those blade-like mouthparts just cut a slit. And then pretty soon they're not going in the front door, so they do not contact the sexual parts. They don't pick up pollen and deposit it on stigmas, but they are really great at robbing or stealing that nectar. So that's a good example where everything is not perfect in the mutualism land of pollinators and plants.
0: You just mentioned mutualisms. And I think of the simplest version of this idea is the bee gets a floral reward, you know, like nectar or pollen, and the plant gets the pollen transportation service, the pollination. Is mutualism more than this? Would you mind sharing some of the purposeful pollination story, I know you mentioned this in the book.
2: Yeah. In my book, I talk about these things as sometimes being more like an arms race. So the bees are really greedy, and those female bees want to get every last drop of nectar and every last speck of the pollen. And it's food. You know, it's high-energy food, flight fuel for the adults, and it's pollen mixed with nectar We call it bee bread for honeybees, but for solitary bees, it's the same thing. They make a little ball of pollen and nectar, lay an egg on it, and that's the complete food that that insect needs to go from egg to adult. Everything is there provided by the mother bee. So the bees would like to get every last scrap. And obviously, it's very energetically expensive, right, for the plants to make all this stuff, all the nectar and pollen. And pollen is basically like plant sperm, the gametes or sex cells for the plant. And not every bit of that can disappear down the gullet of a bee and have the plants survive and reproduce into other generations. So it tends to be that the plants try to hide a bit of the pollen. I mean, sometimes you can have a perfectly good plant reproductive system where only one one thousandth of one percent of the pollen gets transferred from a plant to a stigma. So all you need are just a minute number of pollen grains to find the right spot and aided to get there by the helpful bees. But that's helpful in quotes because they're trying to feed themselves. They're not trying to do a good deed for a plant. You know, They don't get up every morning and say, oh, on my to-do list, it says pollinate 10,000 flowers.
0: We're anthropomorphizing here, but I think it is interestingly helpful to do that because it gives you the sense of what all of these interactions really mean for the individuals and their needs.
2: Most of the world's orchids produce no accessible pollen or nectar for pollinators. So they are basically shamming their fakers, their cheaters in the system. They look like they've got a bunch of goodies. They look good. They smell good. But when the bee arrives or wasp or fly, whatever happens to be pollinating the orchid, they'll get some shrink wrap Pollen glued to their head or abdomen, and generally no tasty nectar. So, yeah, that is something we need to consider in this sort of arms race. One interesting thing that makes the system work is that there are what I call safe sites on bee bodies. So, like on the top of the head, proboscideal fossa, let's call that under the chin, between the leg bases or a fine line down the back of the bee. It's just like you've got an itch on your back and you can't reach to scratch it. So when the female bees go to groom this pollen off when they're back at their nest to shape it into that pollen ball for the larvae, they can't get it all off. So when they go fly out to the next flower, the stigmas are often in the right position to scrape some of that safe site pollen off. So here is part of the arms race, right? The plants are playing this essential game. So they're hiding their pollen on certain parts of the bees where the bees can't reach it.
0: That reminds me of like the spot you're supposed to put medicine, like when the vet gives you something for the dog and you have to like put it on their back or they're not going to lick it. (laughs) So I'm really curious to hear more about the extreme specialists.
2: Here in the Southwest especially in the deserts, one of my favorite bee genera is called Diadesia. And the genus is pretty big, but it really has three kinds of specialists. And one kind goes to globe mallows or other Malvaceae. One kind visits sunflowers. This one's pretty common in California on sunflowers. It's called Diadesia. In Nevada, it's a pretty big fuzzy bee. And then my favorites here in the desert around Tucson is is Diadesia rinconis. And it's a super specialist. It only goes to prickly pear and cholla cacti and nothing else. So these bees are specialized. And by specializing, they become more efficient at finding and collecting pollen and nectar from these plants. But they also put themselves in a little bit of a bind because if that plant doesn't bloom because of inadequate rainfall or whatever, and they come out and their host plant isn't there, they all die. They do have a little bit of what I like to call a bet hedging strategy. So some of these solitary bees can act almost like underground seeds in a seed bank. So some of these bees have been noted to wait up to five or even seven years to emerge from the ground until the conditions are just right.
0: Wow. How do
2: they know? How do they know? I, I know we we really don't know how they know. Um, is it just temperature? Is it soil moisture? Uh, I've even had this wacky idea that plant roots and mycorrhizae may actually be in some kind of communication with bees, so that the the bees are their pollinators are mm-hmm. in tune with when they bloom. Now that's total. Total wild speculation, but who knows? So yeah, I like to think of these solitary bees as sort of seeds sitting there waiting for the right condition, and then their plants bloom, they come out. The females often don't live very long, typically just a few weeks, maybe a month. And then, they well, when they first come out, they they mate, they make a nest, they provision for it, but then they die off. So typically for a lot of these bees, you have... 10 or 12 months out of the year when it's just the underground larvae or pupae resting in a cell below ground. So you don't see the adults at all. So one of the major frustrations of being a pollination ecologist is that you only get one, two or three week shot at studying these systems every year. And so a lot of times I think, wow, I'm in my fifth or sixth year of the study. Why? (laughs) Why? you know, because I only have a couple weeks each year to try to sort it out. So
0: I do want to ask you about the social bees, because I know bumblebees are very charismatic. You'd mentioned the black carpenter bees. I'm curious about this lifespan difference with the short lifespan. What's the story with the longer lifespan for the social bees? Why is their lifespan so long?
2: Typically, because in the case of a honeybee queen or even a bumblebee queen, you have an individual that lives for well, months, almost a year in the case of the bumblebees, and actually several years, typically two or three years in the case of a honeybee queen. So you can think of this perennial organism like this flying social amoeba that needs to go out and send its foragers, these little pseudopodia if you will, into every nook and cranny to find pollen and nectar resources and bring them back. So It's really a high-energy system, especially for honeybee colonies, and that's often one of my worries for putting big concentrations of honeybee colonies, big apiaries, on like Forest Service public lands, or certainly in like a state park or something, because they're pulling a huge, huge amount of pollen and nectar out of the system that, had it remained there, it would be available not just for native bees, but also hummingbirds, nectar bats, butterflies, flies, wasps, all the pollinators. There are some solitary bees that have very long lifespans, like I mentioned the carpenter bees. So not all solitary bees have super short lifespans and are specialists. So for example, carpenter bees live for a long time and they go to a lot of different plants. So they are not specialists.
0: As a gardener, You know, a lot of us really like the idea of supporting the specialists, but also having some of those plants that attract a lot of generalists because that's when you get a really big party (laughs) going on in your garden. Those are those fun moments, right?
2: Yeah. And I would, I guess, throw out here before I forget saying it that some of the best things you can plant to attract a lot of diverse bees would be things in the sunflower family. So they have an open platform and a lot of. Bees and other insects can come to the pollen and nectar party. (laughs) Also, believe it or not, one of the genera of wildflowers, annual wildflowers that attracts more different kinds of bees than almost any other is Phacelia. So that's a really, really nice one to plant.
0: I mean, we're not just talking about a domestic sunflower. There are a lot of interesting native sunflowers.
2: Yeah, and I would advocate people to use native plants or heirloom varieties. Too often we go to a nursery and we buy the latest, greatest, roughly quadruple petaled oddity, really, a hybrid. And actually, I would like to say one last thing in the category of advice to gardeners. Please. So one thing I'd really like to say and to reach out to home gardeners, Probably the best thing that we can do to promote pollinator health and conservation is to plant a diversity of flowers, and especially native flowers that are adapted to your local climate soils, rainfall patterns, all that. Or if you can't do that, at least do some heirloom varieties, because those are really good. If we have planted flowers that bloom in the spring, summer, and fall, then Even some of these specialists, there could be a whole turnover of different specialists or, like I mentioned, bumblebees or carpenter bees or honeybees, which need food throughout the year. Then you have a smorgasbord of flowers for them present during the whole year, and that's really important. It's obviously important not to use insecticides or to use them sparingly, or perhaps, if you can't avoid it, maybe spray something that is a little more bee-friendly and hey, it's easy to go out there and spray at night when the bees are not active. So that's one thing that could be done. And then with herbicides, I've been starting to tell people not to use herbicides in their garden. And I've gotten some shocked looks from scientists on this too, because if you go to the literature, you basically find that almost all the common herbicides that have been tested in labs against bees indicate that herbicides do not kill adult bees. That's pretty much true, but what our microbiome group has just found out and is just about to publish is the fact that herbicides negatively impact those good guy microbes in the cells for the developing bees. So herbicides are knocking out helpful microbes, bacteria and yeasts and that sort of thing In bee cells, that can be killing young, developing bees, but we'd never know it because that's never the test that's done in the lab. They always expose adult bees, and the bees are alive, and they go, okay, herbicides are safe for bees. But we're saying now, no, wait a minute. And I'm not saying all herbicides, but of certain ones that we've tested so far, which were some of the most common ones, they had really negative impacts on larval bees in their nests.
0: That's very significant. And I think even for people who are doing what we call the life not lawn conversion, where they're pulling up turf and wanting to put in a native or you know a garden with a lot of habitat, you do run this risk if you're planning to use herbicides of doing some damage to get rid of that turf. So these are very good cautionary <laughs> statements about this. From a gardening perspective, I think it gets easy for me anyway to start getting overwhelmed because I start thinking there are these certain things that I want to do. And it's like, oh, I need to make sure I'm leaving some leaf litter. Oh, the tips of some stem seem like they might be right for a bee to go in. And it's like, how do we not get frozen? in the garden, trying to make maintenance decisions and care decisions in the garden. And maybe some of this is about observation, do you think? I mean, it's sort of like getting comfortable with your own observations.
1: Yeah. I think that you make a really great point. And I think something that I should note is that even though there are these complexities and there's so much going on and all of these things that could be impacting bees in your area, in your yard, in your landscape, I think that the message would be, yeah, you're right, not to get bogged down with all of those details and worrying about them. And Instead, realize because there are all these different complex pollinator conservation issues potentially going on, anything you do is going to be beneficial. And to kind of just focus on some of those main messages, you know, providing a diverse suite of native plants, try to have it flowering all season long. Like you were saying, I think it's great to have observation in your yard and see how the things that you're doing are kind of changing, not just pollinator, but all sorts of insect life in your yard. You know, if you are planting certain flowers and you're seeing lots of bumblebees, go visit those flowers. That's great. Make a note of that. And then, you know, maybe plant more of those next year, plant them in a different part of your yard if you have a big yard. So I think there's a huge place for observation as you're both gardening and also just trying to provide habitat for invertebrates and pollinators in particular.
0: I've had my own attempts at doing bee identification. I have a fabulous book. And I still remember the first time I got this particular book because it has such gorgeous photos. And I was just like, oh, I'm all ready to go out and find all of these bees that are really solitary, rare bees. You know, I'm like totally excited to look for them. And then I started realizing just how challenging it is. You know, these things are really small and they move really fast. And you're like, oh, I can get a great photo and I'll just use the photo to do the idea. And it's like, I look back at my photo, you know, I even have a macro lens for my phone. And it's like, you can't get anything to hold still long enough can you give some examples of, you know, if you're not going to know how to identify every bee or you're not going to be amazing at it, what should I know to distinguish in this situation so I know that I am planting the right thing?
1: One of the things that researchers do, because like you said, it's so hard to identify bees on the wing or out in the field. And if you're just kind of trying to get that broad overview, you can look at honeybees, bumblebees, big bees, small bees, and then green bees, because those are all different, what are called morpho categories. So, you know, these kind of broad groupings that you can just kind of lump them in. And that's a great way to kind of get a sense. You're like, okay, I'm only seeing honeybees on this. I can identify honeybees. Their characteristics are pretty easy to distinguish from other bees if you look at some photos and kind of familiarize yourself with that. Bumblebees are really easy because they're big, they're fuzzy. Most people are familiar with bumblebees. Adorable. Exactly. You can look at green bees. They're in different groups across the bee world, but they're easy to pick out because they're shiny metallic green. So that's something you can quickly note. And then look for small bees. You know, you have to kind of familiarize yourself again with what bees look like and trying to differentiate between them and wasps. Wasps have that really narrow waist that kind of dangle their legs when they fly. But if you get comfortable telling those different insects apart, If you look for little bees, those are the types of things that you wouldn't notice on a first pass, just glancing at your flowers. You really have to sit there for a few minutes and see, hey, there's these one millimeter long bees or these bees that are the size of a grain of rice that are going in and out of my flowers. Hey, this plant is getting bumblebees. This one's getting bees from across those different groups. And then if you want to go a level deeper, you can familiarize yourself with you know, some of those main bee families. And then you can kind of say, okay, there's these different groups within them. And again, different books. The Bees in Your Backyard is a great one that kind of has these great photos and then kind of breaks down those groups. And then you can start seeing some characteristics that are unique to some other groups of bees, like longhorn bees, where the males have these really long antennae. And then the females are fuzzy and they kind of have these, what almost look like chaps on their legs where they kind of pack the pollen. in. then as you become more familiar with bees, you'll be able to start noting these different characteristics more and become more familiar with them. You can see totally different bees sometimes, more of some one year than other years. That is, give quick bee conservation plug a great reason to plant a diversity of flowering native plants because you won't necessarily have the same bees at the same population level each year. And, you know, different bees will prefer different types of flowers, especially depending on when they're flying. Since as Steve notes in his book, you know, there's some that are only out there flying and foraging for a couple of weeks. So if they emerge and there's nothing growing for them there for them to you know, get food and resources from, then they're kind of out of luck or they'll have to go onto a, a different yard.
0: That really stresses me out But it sounds like what you're saying is also that, you know, if you're planting a set of plants that you think may be very attractive to some solitary or native bees, maybe don't get discouraged if the first season or two that you have those plants, if they're not suddenly attracting bees you've never seen before, because it may take a few years. What do you wish we knew about this? What do you think the concentration should be on, knowing that not everyone is going into your field?
1: I think that a big question that I still have is with the wide variety of flowering plants that are out there and that you do see bees utilize is I think a better understanding of the quality of some of those plants. bees. Just because a bee is visiting and utilizing a plant and collecting pollen from it, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's an optimal resource. You know, maybe it's the only thing that's out there. Something that's mentioned a lot is dandelions, you know, being in your lawn. They can be used as an early season resource by bees, which is true.
0: But they're like, this isn't very good. If I had something better at the bar right now, I would be, I would totally be drinking it.
1: This isn't the best. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I wouldn't be ordering a dandelion. But I think that, you know, it would be a big undertaking, but a better sense of that kind of whole picture for a lot of the different plants that are in our urban areas, because then it would kind of give a better sense of, okay, this is the quality of the habitat that you're providing. I think something else that would be really interesting to know about is also the impact that a lot of the the chemicals that we find in urban areas have on bees at all different life stages. And this includes pesticides, herbicides fungicides but then also some of the other contaminants that you can find in our residential areas because we have so much else going on it's not just pollinator habitat unfortunately we also have things running off and washing off surfaces and i think a better understanding of how some of those substances and those chemicals impact bees not only as adults, but also you know, in their developmental stages as larvae. And I think that would give us a better understanding of what we need to try to prevent, but then also how we can mitigate it. You know, One thing that sometimes people are concerned about, and again, in our residential spaces, is creating you know, what's called an ecological trap, right? Where you're creating this habitat but it's actually damaging. So you're drawing pollinators in to a floral display that then is, you know, hit by an insecticide.
0: Oh, but now we're talking about a horror movie. Right?
1: No, that's a horror movie. I'm sorry to bring up that terrible visual, but I think that that's, you know, one of those things where when you're thinking about creating habitat in some of these areas is a better understanding of the risks that surround them.
0: Erin, it was so fun talking to you.
1: Yeah, it was great to chat with you too, Sarah. This is great.
0: Thanks, everyone, for listening today. If you liked Garden Futurist, please share it on your favorite social media platform or follow us on Spotify. Find us at pacifichorticulture.org. As a garden futurist, here's something I thought you might like to know. At Pacific Horticulture, we are working to support the idea that the ways in which gardens are supportive to our ecosystems, climate resilience, and the health of people in our communities are as valuable and important as beautiful plants and innovative design. I'm so excited to announce the launch of our Design Futurist Award. The Design Futurist Award will spotlight design that is applicable to the intimate scale of gardens just like yours. You can find out more at pacifichorticulture.org.